Chasing Leviathan is a podcast about pursuing truth, one big question at a time through the discipline of listening. Truth is too big to tame. But if we pay close attention, we might get the chance to glimpse something truly magnificent. So please join me in this pursuit, one week at a time. Hello, and welcome to Chasing Leviathan. I'm your host, PJ Weary, and I'm here today with Dr. Mary Jane Rubenstein. She is a scholar of religion, philosophy, science studies, and gender studies at Wesleyan University. She is the professor of religion and science in society. Uh, Dr. Rubenstein, wonderful to have you here today. Thank you so uh, and much. And we're talking about your book, Astrotopia. That sounds like a great thing to talk about. Thanks so much, PJ, for having me. It's great to meet you. Um, so why this book? What, what made you look at this and be like, ah, I need to write something about this? Ah, okay. So uh, I have tended, I think, throughout my relative adulthood um, to write projects, to write books about um, places that religion shows up where we're not necessarily expecting it. Um, so at first, it was kind of close to my own discipline. I was writing about um, sort of theological commitments in what looked like secular philosophies, like French and German, stuff like that. Um, and then I started branching out. I, I, I wrote about um, this notion of the multiverse, the idea that um, our universe might just be one of an infinite number of universes, um, which seemed to me absolutely ludicrous, um, but it was coming from like the most respectable of physicists. And I was like, wow, this is fascinating. And I realized that, um, you know, physics, uh, theoretical physics is sort of generating mythologies, generating theologies. Um, even or particularly where they think that they're being, being, you know, as far from religion as humanly possible. So I like to, again, sort of like point out religion where it's operating, where we might not be, um, we might not be seeing it. Um, fast forward uh, past a couple of things to this one. Um, I, uh, you know, honestly, it, uh, these, these projects seem to tend to like fall in my lap. It's like I'll just be having a conversation and somebody will say something that then just sticks with me and I can't let it go. And then it just kind of keeps at me. Um, this one, a totally inauspicious beginning. My, I invited my cousin for dinner. My cousin came for dinner and he was at the dinner table and said, you know, hey, have you heard? This is my cousin's one of these, uh, you know, entrepreneur types who like always starting new companies and doing new things. Blah, blah, blah. Um, and uh, and he said, yeah, did you hear about this Japanese fashion designer, Yusuko Maizawa, uh, um, who bought all of the tickets on Elon Musk's uh, hypothetical, not built yet, uh, BFR or B big effing rocket. Um, Musk had said, he'd basically, uh, you know, decided to crowdsource it. He was like, look, I, you can have a, a seat on my rocket if you give me a whole bunch of money to fund the building of this rocket um, and just name your price and, you know, whoever bids a lot. Well, and this fashion designer was like, I'll buy them all. I'll buy them all. And for some undisclosed amount, people have asked them and asked them and they've been like, it's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. We're not talking about it. It's a whole lot of money. <laughs> for some undisclosed amount, this guy bought all of the tickets on this rocket ship. Um, and when asked what he was going to do, I mean, he's only got, you know, one butt. Like, who, uh, what, what are you going to do with all those seats? He said, um, I'm going to give all the rest of the seats to artists, to artists of all sorts, to, you know, a video installation artist and a performance artist and a um, you know, a, a visual artist and a, a sculptor and a blah, blah, blah. 
Um, because my hope is that when they get into space, they'll be able to uh, look back at the Earth from the orbit of the moon and see the Earth in such a way that furthers my actual vision. I mean, you think I want to be a billionaire. You think I want to make up my actual vision of promoting world peace. And everybody's like, yay. And then the press release stops. And, um, and so I started thinking about outer space as a site for these like, beautiful promises of human redemption. That, like, that space seems to offer different people different kinds of uh, visions of these more perfect existences that we might have, either out in space or here. Um, and then, of course, once you start following the Elon Musk train, you realize, like, oh, he's trying to get us to Mars, and isn't that interesting? Um, and it, it, it's the, the more that I read up and the more that I listened, the more that I realized that he sounds a whole lot like that guy on the street who's got a sign that says, like, repent, the end is near, you know, like the world is coming to an end, follow me and we can build, you know, we can find uh, sort of immortality together, but you have to follow me in order to escape the coming disaster and deserve the coming salvation on another world that you've never seen, but I promise you it's going to be great. Um, so that's, that's where this came from. And I started sort of like hearing um, these sort of religion notes sounded more and more uh, aggressively as I, as I uh, stuck with it. Uh, it seems like you're uh, making some movement from like physicists to and and maybe we should take you know this seriously, but there is almost more of a po uh, pop culture feel. Um, did you even like with the multiverse? That my first thought was about Marvel. And do you see? Um, can you talk a little bit about what's that? What that's like to go from kind of the hardcore physicist to like pop culture even for elon musk a lot of like you talk about him being a showman right like a lot of um what he's good at is like i don't want to say invading pervading pop culture maybe invading would be right i don't know we'll have to ask mars when he gets there but um uh can you talk a little bit about uh that process where uh these kind of hard science mythologies become pop culture mythologies and what is that transformation like okay so i think it's not it wasn't actually as big of a leap as it might sound like to from the you know the hardcore physicists to these sort of like techno prophets um and the reason is that the hardcore physicists themselves have spokespeople among them who write these massively popular books um, that are called things like the end of everything or the beginning of everything or like God is dead or whatever. They're like they have these huge titles and they're meant to sell a whole bunch of copies um, to people who've known that God is dead and who want a physicist to tell them about it and who write. Um, so I actually my my my. Uh, I had one eye, I guess I only have two of them, but one of my eyes was trained at all times on the way that theoretical physics was being, is being translated for everyday readers, everyday, you know, excited, edu educated readers who um, want to learn more about what physicists are telling us about the nature of reality. Um, and I attended, and I still attend, to the way that physicists talk to ordinary people about what their big ideas mean and why they're important. Um, and again, in 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 the in the multiverse realm, um, the answer is usually this is important because it means there's no such thing as God. Which let me just say that that it's it's not it's that's not a decent philosophical statement. It, 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 the multiverse neither confirms the existence of God nor disproves the existence of God. It doesn't it doesn't help in any way there. Um, 
But uh, that was usually the takeaway. The takeaway was, um, you know, now finally physics has done away with the need for a god because we've got an infinite number of universes. So what need do we have for a god, et cetera? Um, And the way that we usually think about it is that, you know, physics behaves in physics, which are, you know, most the most fundamental of the sciences because it deals with the smallest and the largest things. deals with, uh, you know, the rarefied language of mathematics. It makes its calculations out of necessity, out of objectivity. It just, it just, it, its numbers generate numbers. And then the, you know, very adept are able to take those numbers and then translate to uh, the rest of us in, in stories and tell us what that means. Right. So you, so it, it starts here in the real and then it gets sort of translated into stories. Um, What I was trying to say about the multiverse stuff is that if you attend to the way that the stories are told and sort of follow that path back up to the calculations, you realize that the calculations themselves, the observations themselves, the questions themselves, the um, formulas themselves are motivated by by stories, too. That it's, you know, it's stories, it's commitments, it's ideas and it's assumptions that produce the need to run those calculations in the first place. So actually, stories are kind of all the way through. We have, you know, we again have stories and um, and uh, assumptions that prompt us to ask particular questions that prompt us to calculate and calculate and calculate that then prompt us to retranslate those calculations into more stories and assumptions that reaffirm the stories and assumptions that we were telling in the first place. The thing that I think is cool about space science is that the extent to which stories influence the work that science does is absolutely right there on the surface. Like you don't have to dig, you don't have to say like, hey, look, you know, Jeff Bezos took James T. Kirk, William Shatner, up to space because he's like, I'm only doing what I'm doing because I watch Star Trek. Like, it's very clear. So you don't have to you don't have to make that convincing. Like, actually, you know, it seems like literature and the humanities and popular culture are really behind these scientific projects. When it comes to space, everybody knows it. Right. Everybody knows that we're all sort of chasing those worlds that we've been reading about. Um, so, uh, it was, so it was a little more, um, of, uh, like some of convincing work that I needed to do when I was in the theoretical physics world. Um, it's, it's, it's less, it's less hard to, um, make the point here. Does that, is that, does that answer your question at all? Does that? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, immediately I think of, I mean, um, man, you talk about these stories that directly influence these people who are creating these things. And, um, uh, maybe just as a, a parallel thing. Uh, Elon Musk is doing the chip in the brain thing. And I was like, I was reading science fiction with chips in the brain like 30 years ago, 20, well, 20 years ago. You know, I mean, it, uh, that stuff has been around uh, for decades. And uh, it, that's really, um, uh, so it's not just space then it's there there's a couple key areas where it seems like the beliefs are and stories are wrapped up mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. that's really that's j- just a really interesting way to think about it and it makes it feel more accessible too because sometimes like you know you're like it's literal rocket science right like <laughs> mm-hmm. you're like oh it's there's no way to know um right i think and for go ahead the thing i was gonna say about the chip the chip in the brain business is that it seems to me that um the billionaire tech industry right now is showing us the limits of satire as a critical genre, right? That like (laughs) these stories that we've been reading for 20, 30 years, which were, um, 
which were designed as cautionary tales, as, you know, this is what could happen if we continue on this disastrous trajectory we're on, um, now are enthusiastically taken up by these rich guys who are like, wait, I can do that. We can do that. <laughs> chip in the brain. Let's do a chip in the brain. I read this book about a chip in the brain um, without realizing that that was supposed to, again, that was supposed to be satire. It was supposed to be irony. It was supposed to be um, a don't do this kind of tale, right? Um, so, uh, so it seems like uh, those of us who are, um, are, are poetic and literary, and, and I unfortunately am not one of them, um, might at least uh, take heed, which doesn't say don't, don't write ironically, but it, it, it doesn't seem to do the automatic work that I think a lot of folks hoped that it would do. Uh, this is like um, Elon Musk uh, and maybe it was Bezos. I mean, I've heard m- multiple interviews where uh, these Silicon Valley people are referencing Skynet as they're talking about building AI and they're like, no, 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 it won't be like that. And you're like, why not? Like, it won't be. <laughs> Cause it'll be great. Cause trust me. Cause awesome. Yeah. yeah. There's, can I, can I like, can I, can I be crazy and go off camera for a second? Cause I've got this sure. really cool thing to read. Hold on. I'm just going to find it. I'm going to go. So we're going to, no I'm going to take you past my door. I love it. All right, here we go. I'm back. There's a, uh, I have this, I have this tweet printed out on my door, like an old person printed out. Um, here, you can even see it. it says, my grandma uh, would be proud. Yeah. yeah thank you. Um. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's uh, at Alex Blechman. I don't know this person. This just went, you know, viral. Um, sci-fi author, colon. In my book, I invented the torment nexus as a cautionary tale. Tech company, colon. At long last, we have created the Torment Nexus from classic sci-fi novel, Don't Create the Torment Nexus. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so good. Anyway, I'm really indebted to Alex Blackman for, you know, making yeah. it real. Yeah. Pro- yes. Yes. Um, it would be, uh, we're laughing, but we're also crying inside. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so actually, uh, and I think this would be helpful. Um, can you talk a little bit, what is... In this context, how are you using terms like mythology and mm-hmm. religion? Mm-hmm. Great. Um, by mythology, I mean, um, I don't mean that it's that a, mytholo- a myth is a story. Um, I don't mean that it's a false story. You, you have a, a, an advanced degree in religion. You know that I don't mean that it's a false story. Um, what I mean is that it's an orienting story. Um, a myth is a story that tells a particular community uh, where they come from who they are and where they're going and how they ought to behave in a world. That's, that's how I understand the term myth. Um, again, it's, it's a collectively socially orienting story. Um, a myth says you are the creation of a muskrat who dived down to the bottom of the sea and pulled up a little bit of mud and put it on the back of a turtle and then the turtle allowed it. Right. Um, a, a myth says you are the creation of a jealous God who decided in his loneliness to create a universe. Um, you are the creation of the earth itself that vegetated you um, in the early days from um, and as such, as vegetation, you should, uh, you know, grow and orient yourself to the sun. So it gives you um, a sense of where you come from and a sense of uh, who you are, who your people are, um, who your relatives are, right? Either other humans or the more than human world. Um, and again, where, where you're up to. Um, so when I say that, um, say, the new corporate space race is generating mythologies, uh, what I mean is that it's giving us these big stories about 
where we come from, who we are, who's important, who's not important, and most, perhaps most importantly in these stories, where we're headed. Um, the scholar of religion, Jonathan Z. Smith, says that, um, actually, no, this is David Chittister. The scholar of religion, David Chittister, says um, that you can, <laughs> you, know, you can divide up religious uh, communities into a lot of different distinctions. But one um, helpful distinction is that um, some religious traditions are uh, more fundamentally oriented toward the past than the future, right? This is the way we were created. This is the way we should always be. Um, that's a past-oriented religion. A future-oriented tradition says something like, yeah, we were created, but you know what? The conditions are terrible. We need to build a new world, a different world, somewhere else and some other. So those are more futurally oriented traditions. Um, the, the space race, as I understand it, is much less concerned with its, its RK, its, its primordium, its beginning, than it is with its telos or, uh, or the end of things or where it's headed. Um, by religion, I mean um, a, uh, um, a social product, a social phenomenon that involves, on the one hand, myth, those, you know, these, these kinds of stories, and on the other hand, rituals. Um, Practices that the community needs to do um, in particular ways over and over again to ensure that disaster doesn't come to the community. So um, one of the so one of the ways that I like to understand the um, the Apollo program. It's when I so I'll say for example the Apollo program uh, is in a particular sense if this is interesting to you and if it's not don't worry about it religious. And what I mean by the Apollo program is religious is that the two big um, symbolic things that the, the Apollo program did. It, it did, you know, it, it got into literal things. It got into space. It landed on the moon. These are, um, it suited men up in white. Um, the two big symbolic things that it did were that Apollo 8, um, as it orbited the moon, decided, uh, as it watched uh, lunar sunrise, so the sun sort of peeking up over the, over the moon, um, recited in turn uh, the opening book of Genesis, Genesis 1. They read, they read in turn from Genesis, all of the astronauts up there. Um, that is a ritualized retelling of the creation myth that they understood to be the shared uh, creation myth of America, right? which what they would call Judeo-Christian or something like that, right? Because Genesis uh, was the book of, again, the people they understood to be the majority of Americans. So this is, there's a sort of mythic retelling that happens with the, this massive thing, this massive accomplishment of Apollo 8. And then Apollo 11 undertakes this um, utterly significant ritual of installing a big stake in the ground, which is to say the American flag, uh, which scholars of religion would call an axis mundia, like a long vertical structure that, that connects the heavens and the earth and the underworld. Um, myth and ritual. Um, these are the, 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 stuff you, the, the, the stories you tell and the behaviors you enact. Um, that, for me, constitutes uh, one way of thinking about religion. I think. If I'm understanding you correctly, as you're talking about all these different areas of science, what what you're saying is, especially these, and I want to make sure that I'm just tracking with you. Um, when you talk about uh, these hard uh, sciences, that when they are most desperate for meaning, they turn to myth and ritual. Would that be a way? Uh, would that be a way to kind of? Uh, think about what you're saying. I think meaning is a really generous way to put it. When they're most desperate for meaning, they turn to myth and ritual. Um, um, what would be an ungenerous way? <laughs> an ungenerous way would be to say when they're most desperate for power, they turn to ah. myth and ritual. 
And power, you can understand, look, we're all, we have all read Foucault here. Like, you can understand that in a productive sense, or you can understand it in a limiting sense, in a good guy sense, or a bad guy sense. Um, but the, the, look, if, if Apollo 8 had gotten up um, to, you know, lunar orbit and had decided from lunar orbit to read, like, Shel Silverstein, it would not have had the same power as reading Genesis 1. If they had landed on the moon and they had uh, conducted an elaborate tea cer- ceremony, it wouldn't have had the right power. It either would have signified the UK or it would have signified Ch- China. These are the wrong. These are the wrong things. So, um, the yeah. So I, I I think of these gestures as uh, imbuing either the rhetoric or the behavior with. Um, with power, with with the ability to affect people, to say like, oh my gosh, this is really, really significant, right? Um, so when, um, you know, when Mike Pence in 2019 said, listen, everybody, just so you know, it is the first priority of this administration and the next one when we get reelected um, to go back to the moon and then to go to Mars, uh, he ended up quoting from Psalm 139 and saying, you know, wherever, because wherever we go in the universe, God's right hand will hold us fast. This is 2019, right? He needs that. And he knows that a lot of the electorate isn't being like, oh, isn't that Psalm 139? But there's like something stirring, even for the secular citizen, about that like lofty sounding rhetoric. If he had said instead, you know, we're going to the moon and then we're going to Mars, because after all, as South Park said or whatever, like it just doesn't have the same kind of gravitas, right, as, as, as scripture says. So um, I see it as a way to, um, I mean, the same, look, and this is, this is uh, you, you, you probably know that the, the book I've just written tries to tie uh, the, the contemporary space race into the long history of um, European-style colonialism. Um, and the long history of European-style colonialism was entirely dependent on the Roman Catholic Churches saying, have these lands, take these lands, comma, Spain, take these lands, comma, Portugal, um, for the sake of converting the indigenous inhabitants. Of course, they didn't want, they didn't care about converting indigenous inhabitants. The Pope didn't, the Queen of Spain didn't, they, did, they cared about the gold and the spices and the stuff and the land itself, like getting the land itself. But you need an ideological justification for it because, you know, Ordinary folks are like, I don't know, aren't there people who live there? Like, even in the 15th century, aren't there people who live there? Should we really take their stuff? Um, and you're not going to get an ideological justification that is as powerful as, well, you know, Jesus Christ gave this authority to Peter, and Peter gave it to Alexander VI through the long line of apostolic. And of course, Jesus Christ gets it from God the Father. So, like, that's as big of an authenticating structure as you can get. Um, and that's the role, I think, that, that religion tends to play. Right, and then uh, and then England uh, dominating uh, is seen as the uh, as Protestant theology winning out over Catholic over theology. Catholic theology, right? And then right. the U.S. is understood to be um, God's new Israel, which is to say, uh, filled with the people with whom God has made a new covenant. So it's not the Jews, and it's certainly not the Catholics. It's going to be the Protestants um, who establish, you know, a new promised land in the in the space of the U.S. Um, it, can you talk a little bit about that line you draw? Um, I'm glad you brought it up because I have this written down <laughs> as, as a question. I've argued. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the uh, the doctrine of discovery to manifest destiny to the new space race. Um, and it, are they calling it that? Like I have not heard that term before. Is that something that you coined, or is that like like uh, a nomenclature that's like floating around, like the the name new space race? 
Oh, so, um, yeah, it's not, I, I wish it were a better coinage than it is. I wish it were, um, uh, the, the, um, private space corporations do call themselves new space all, all smushed together in, uh, what's known as camel case, which is to say that the N and the S are capitalized on the, if, you know, for those of the listeners who aren't graphic design people, um, so smushed together camel case, new space. Um, and, uh, and I, and I think, I don't, I don't know that I heard, have heard anybody else call it new space race, but it's not, it's not much to get from, you know, if you've got new space already, you just stick a race on the end of it. So I'm not yeah. going to call it my coinage, but I, you know, I did, um, yeah. Um, so, and, I'm and tracking, I'm, you know, I'm tracking. yeah, I'm, I'm hearing it. I'm hearing it from now. So, um, yeah, so I try, I draw, uh, okay. Um, so what are you, what, what's the question? So we were talking about, uh, the doctrine of discovery, mm-hmm. um, also, the fact that I get to talk about, like, even just here at Camel Case, I, my day job is a, a digital marketer, and I, I do coding. And so, <laughs> not a designer, but you said Camel Case. I'm like, I haven't heard that in a long time. No, um, <laughs> sorry. Look, I'm here to bring the grandma. A- I'm here to yeah. bring the grandma in whatever form I can bring it. No, no, that's, no, I, uh, I just haven't talked to, a, a, like, another programmer, and uh, it hasn't come up with our designers, but I, I love that. No, um. That was a complete aside. I That's just cool. really, I enjoyed hearing that term again. Um, and, you know, especially discovery. as someone who has uh, had a master's in philosophy going into the programming world mm-hmm. and the arguments about whether you should use Pascal case, camel case, and all the naming conventions. That's a, I, I feel like you could, we could do a podcast on that, but that's a whole Absolutely. other thing. I, <laughs> I digress. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but the doctrine of discovery to manifest destiny to new space race. If you can tease that out uh, for our listeners, um, uh, I was wondering where you were going to go with the dangerous religion of the corporate space race, Astrotopia. And uh, as soon as you mentioned like those three together, I was like, oh, of course it's that. Like, <laughs> I didn't, I, how did I not see this coming? Like, mm-hmm. it's so obvious once, once I read it. Mm-hmm. Anyways, go ahead. So the doctrine of discovery is this, uh, it really has its, or it's a political doctrine, has its origins in the 16th century. Uh, And the idea is that as Europe is uh, exploring lands unknown to Europe heretofore, um, if it can be said to have discovered those lands, which is to say, if there doesn't seem to be anybody else there, then those lands are effectively theirs. Um, our, the term no man's land, the, the, the term in Latin is terra nullius, uh, land belonging to nobody. As long as it belongs to nobody, um, it can be the property of whoever finds it. Um, now, of course, the, the, the promulgators of the doctrine of discovery understood that there were human beings living in the places that were said to be empty. Um, so there were caveats. And one of them was, well, what we mean by it's nobody's is nobody has improved upon the land. Nobody's built anything lasting there. Nobody's um, changed it in any significant way. It is in its virgin state. Therefore, the people are more or less flora and fauna. Um, and if that's the case, right, if nobody's built anything of worth or lasting, then um, it belongs to uh, the, the, the nation that, that finds it. Um, and then the nation who finds it is, uh, you know, given full license to remake that land in the image of old Europe, right? We, um, we call New England, New England. <laughs> we call, uh, we, there, are, there are, I was talking about a moment ago about the U.S. is a new promised land. The promised land in the Hebrew Bible is the land of Canaan. There are 20 new Canaans in the U.S. There are 20 towns called New Canaan in the U.S. So you don't have to go far to understand that um, this was the idea. The idea was go find land that nobody else seems to have claim to, claim it and remake it in the image of the old, of the old country. 
Um, this doctrine of discovery uh, underwrote the uh, seizure of the Americas, the Caribbean, and then, as you know, you know the early uh, the early American nation state occupied uh, more or less the eastern seaboard of of North America. Um, in the 19th century, um, we get an increasing number of appeals to you know push farther and farther west. The the boundary, the frontier, has been pushing west, but there's a this sort of concerted effort um, to push west, particularly uh, in pursuit of gold. Um, and there, the operative political doctrine is known as manifest destiny. Um, and manifest destiny means, <laughs> effectively, God wants European-descended Americas to have the entire continent. That's what it means. Um, what do the words mean? The words mean um, it is the destiny of these chosen people, again, these, this, this, the, the new people of God, the God with whom God has made this new, new covenant, um, to have this entire land. And we know because... Gosh, those people are doing so well. <laughs> like light-skinned Americans are just kicking ass, right? They're like absolutely destroying everything in their path, the forests, the folks. Of it. Um, so therefore, unlike the destiny of, say, Israel, which is always kind of a little like up in the air, like, oh, gosh, did, did God really make a promise with them? They've suffered so much. It's not really clear. Like it's a very hidden destiny. It's like a secret destiny. The destiny of Americans is manifest. It's clear. Um, so it's unbelievable. It's this like real act of um, theological bravado to to say like this is God is God is not working secretly here. God is working manifestly. Um, okay. Um, then old space race. So the uh, old the frontier is declared closed at the very end of the nineteenth century. Nineteen um, fifties. Uh, Werner von Braun, the the uh, ex Nazi rocket scientist, now uh, working for the U.S. Um, declares that there is going to be an opening of a new frontier in outer space. And this will be, he says, the last frontier because it's an infinite frontier. Um, and suddenly, the, 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 rhetorically, the hope was to, um, you know, re-enliven post-war Americans who were sort of weary and sad and had no future and be like, no, no, we're moving. There's a new place. There's a new place. We can reignite the American dream. We've got new frontier fantasies. Um, and Werner von Braun himself said that it was uh, the manifest destiny of Americans uh, to conquer the heavens, to conquer outer space um, for political freedom, uh, for scientific advancement, um, for military dominance, and perhaps most surprisingly, um, for uh, the salvation of souls. Um, Werner von Braun became a, uh, a, an evangelical uh, convert, a born-again Christian when he was on American soil, um, and thought that it was America's duty to spread the gospel to nations out in people in extraterrestrials out in outer space. Um, okay. Some of that language that, you know, very straightforward sort of Christianly underwritten, you are supposed to take this land because God says so, and there's effectively nothing on it anyway, therefore you should take it, um, can still be found in, say, the speeches of Mike Pence in 2019, as he was um, uh, declaring that NASA was going to go back to the moon and then to Mars. Um, in Donald Trump's State of the Union address, uh, he actually calls space America's manifest destiny very clearly. So that stuff is there. It's there. Um, but it's not that interesting. What I find more interesting now, because the gravitas has changed, because, again, when, 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 when Pence, you know, appeals to Psalm 139, most of the like the Bernie bros aren't like, oh, yay, Psalm 139. Like, that's not interesting to the Bernie. Bro. It's not interesting to a great deal of the American electorate. Um, I don't think that's where the, the, the gravitas and the power are. 
um, the place where the power is now is not so much in the nation state and not so much in this explicit Christian doctrine, but rather in the hands of these private actors, these very charismatic CEOs who are using a different tactic. And it's, it's still what I would call a religious tactic. We still have mythology. We still have ritual. We still have. Um, but instead, they're selling these kinds of these like private revelations again, about the certainty of coming disaster and the promise of like an infinite future in a new land somewhere else. But they're not explicitly hooking it into the uh, destiny of the nation state and they're not explicitly hooking it into Christian rhetoric, except insofar as like you're about to be destroyed, you'd better get saved as Christian rhetoric. But it's not, you know, not any more specific than that. Well, when you talk about uh, where, who, and where, right? Like where we came from, who we are, and where we're going, um, it is, I mean, they're Christian categories when you say damnation and salvation, but almost every myth, not every myth, I would say, but almost every myth has those like, if you follow, this is what, you know, you'll either get one or the other, right? And so, especially in a Judeo-Christian context, it would make sense that those things like that you would have those things present, right? Yeah. That makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it, it's an impl implicitly Christian framing, it, but it's not explicitly Christian. Then again, they're not, they're not quoting the Psalms. They're not reciting Genesis. Elon Musk, when he gets to Mars, is not going to recite Genesis. He's going to read, you know what he is going to read? He's going to read like, uh, like Stapleton and Gaiman and, um, and he's going to like play the Star Wars soundtrack, right? His, the, the new canon is this uh, secular sci-fi, um, very male canon uh, instead. Um kind of an off the wall question, but uh, we have the ocean supremely unexplored, right? Um, do you think there are any, uh, and I, I don't think most people understand our cultural roots in what we believe about the ocean, right? But I think that we, it is something that is in maybe our collective subconscious or whatever you want to put there for like those kind of mythic undercurrents. Um, do you think uh, there are, when, when you think about why we turn to the stars rather than to the depths, is there, are there reasons for that? Why do you think that we have chosen, why we, people get more excited about space and about stars than about uh, oceans and trenches? Okay, three responses. Um, one, I have a very good colleague and friend, Jenna Soup Montgomery at uh, Iowa. Um, who writes about uh, seasteaders, um, folks who are looking to set up um, independent colonies uh, in international waters where nobody can reach them. Um, and we have a very similar utopian drive there. Um, so there are some resonances, just to say, there, there, they, and, um, and there are parallel um, uh, movements, parallel aspirations, um, absolutely. Uh, that having been said, the seasteaders just don't get as much attention as no, these no, cosmic <laughs> homesteaders, right? Um, right I mean, right. seasteading isn't isn't a household world word so much. I mean, it's it's fascinating. These guys are very rich and they're up to no good, but um, it's it's not as <laughs> it's not as arresting an image. Um, why turn to the stars rather than the depths? Um, there is the um, cynical answer and the non-cynical answer. The cynical answer, which I'll start with is as, um, as Bob Zubrin says, Bob Zubrin is the CEO or the chair of the um, Mars Society, uh, who has been a great influence on Elon Musk. Um, his notion of how we can terraform Mars, that we must terraform Mars, 
Um, it is Bob Zubrin, in fact, who writes this very important paper at the end of the 20th century um, saying that uh, we need to go back into space because America needs a frontier. And without a frontier, America is lost and we are just doomed to sort of, I don't know, shrivel up in our own sort of wokeness. Um, that we need something to conquer and without a front, and, and that's outer space and therefore we have to go to Mars, right? Um, and as Zubrin says, uh, as Zubrin says, you know, why Mars? Why not the moon? He, he asks his own question. You know, the moon's closer. Um, and Zubrin says, well, on the one hand, there's more stuff on Mars. There are more elements on Mars that are harnessable than there are, are on the moon. So the, Mars has a little more atmosphere. Mars, it's, like, it's, a, it's, a, it's a better planet, period. It's a better planetary body. Um, but the real problem, he says, is that on the moon, the cops are too close. This is a direct quotation. The cops are too close. Um, you can't. That was not what I thought he was going to say. But OK. Yeah. Continue. What did you think he was going to say? <laughs> I, not that. I, I, I wasn't sure it was going. But that took me by surprise. Yeah, Sorry, you, go ahead. You can't have a genuinely independent civilization unless it's really, really, really far away and relatively inaccessible. And a six-month month trip makes Mars inaccessible for anything like – and this, this upsets me because it, it also means like the FAA is too close and any kind of regulators are too close, right? Um, he, he – and if, you, if, you, if you've, you may have heard this, that um, Elon Musk has a lot of – you know, he's, he's got a lot of irons in a lot of different fires. Um, but one of them uh, is that he's got um, these, this, this constellation of satellites called Starlink. Um, six – every two weeks he launches 60 more satellites into orbit. Um, and the idea is to get like the fastest possible Wi-Fi for the most dedicated possible gamers. Of course, this is not what he says. What he says is like, I'm saving Africa by giving a Wi-Fi or something like that. Um, but Starlink, if you, um, Starlink is still in beta testing, but you can um, get a dish on your house, especially if you live like somewhere in the mountains where you don't get decent Wi-Fi um, and you can, you can uh, get uh, Wi-Fi service. Um, in the Starlink contract section, I don't know nine or something. If you read the fine print, the like the the, the footnote to the fine print, um, you agree. You as a as a as a, a purchaser of broadband, um, you agree to recognize Mars as a free planet over which no nation has any jurisdiction. Um, so he's already declaim, proclaiming sovereignty for a planet that he's never been to. Um, and he gets this idea again from Zubrin, who's saying we're not ever going to be able to do anything genuinely new, genuinely great. Um, if we're still constrained by the old ways, therefore we have to we have to go all the way to Mars. So, um, the cynical answer: Why not the sea? Is that the sea is too close? Antarctica is too close, right? The, the, there, it, the sea is still subject to some kind of earthly regulations. Whereas, if you get six months away, there's not much they can do about about whatever it is that you're up to, right? Um, the uncynical answer is that. Um, Again, thanks in large part to the influence of monotheistic religions in the West, um, transcendence, otherness, like living otherwise, being other ways of being is often understood to be, even though like maybe your Sunday school teacher tells you not to think of it, but like up, like God is up, right? The angels are up there. Heaven is up there. Right. And even though most of us at this point have been in airplanes, we've been we've been in the clouds and we've been like, oh, you, know, and you don't see St. Peter there. And even though we've got tons of people who've like lived on the International Space Station and have not collided with any angels, we still I mean, just just uh, that we know of. But yeah. that, that we know of. Right. Exactly. Right. Right. <laughs> that wasn't an angel. That was space trash. Yeah. Um, we still just rhetorically talk about um the otherworldly as as up as above us as above. So um, I think there is in the and 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 also even though we know <laughs> that space outer space isn't up there either, right? Outer space is down there and this way and this way and this way. But when it comes down to it, and you got to get a rocket in the sky, the rocket does go up in order to get out, 
Um, so we associate uh, space travel and outer space itself with upness and transcendence with upness and like redemption and heaven with upness. Hell is down there. Hell is down there. Right. So you got to like, <laughs> I, I don't know when I, I, I've, <laughs> I've got a kid who's, who's both very excited about space and um, with becoming a person who discovers um, undiscovered sea creatures. Um, but like the mode that he's in when he's talking about being a deep, deep sea explorer or a, or a, a spaceman are, are different. They're different modes. They're different modes. Yeah. Um, and we do tend to associate, uh, you know, down with, with Hades, with the underworld, with the mysterious in a kind of creepy way. Um, and, and the, and again, the vertical, the upward is, is somehow transcendent and different. So there's like a, there's a romantic, there is a romanticism about the, about the stars that I think that, um, there's a, and it's it's not just upness, right? There's a there's the centuries, millennia, of very smart philosophers thinking that it must be that the stars are made out of a totally different stuff from us. They seem to be of a different order because they're so reliable, they're so eternal, they're so unchanging, right? Um, we know that the depths of the sea are going to be subject to the same kinds of parameters that we are, um, if not a little or weirder, worse. But, yeah. Exactly. yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's like because I mean, you look in uh, a lot of uh, our like you know, uh, Leviathan, for instance, right? <laughs> like, you look like, sorry, like, I'm familiar with this, but like, uh, the, uh, the stuff that comes from the sea is almost always bad. Like, yeah. it's like judgment, it's yeah. changing, yeah. it's all those things, right? Right, that's um, great. Though it's yeah. funny, you mentioned, yeah, uh, whereas, you know, salvation is up. And it, I mean, I love the simplicity, but also like, it's true, we still think like that. Um, but you mentioned it was actually what made me think of that question was my son being obsessed with watching deep ocean, uh, like learning about giant squids and stuff and the rhetoric around what is at, honestly, we know probably more about Mars than, than we do about the deep ocean, but we're not excited about going down to the depths, down right? The like, depths, I mean, right. there's like, so uh, that's what made me think of was actually my son, like, mm -hmm. Uh, it's kind of a weird thing. I try and like limit screen time. And he was literally like, I, can I watch another documentary? He watched like three hours of documentaries on giant squids. I was like, yeah, okay. This one's actually okay. Yeah, but absolutely. Yeah. 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 So that was, um, yeah, it, it's really, uh, the, the stories that surround even like the, like, um, kind of, I like, they almost seem like from another planet, but it's not, uh, it doesn't have. Nothing, I, I can't think of anything, um, you know, you, you can look at a, a couple different examples um, in popular culture of uh, what comes up from the depths, uh, even aliens coming up from the depths, and they're always monsters. Whereas if you think about from <laughs> aliens coming from right. the space, they're always, anyways, it's yeah, just, yeah, yeah. A, it was an, it's a fascinating, it was just a, it was a strange as you're talking, made me think of it. Yep, that's right. I, the, I mean, Leviathan is chief among these. The 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 sea the sea monsters are monsters, and yes. what and what we mean by monsters is they're they're a, a chaotic uh, concatenation of categories that ought not like a, a, a Leviathan is a like a dragon and a serpent and a water thing and a sky thing and a whatever right. Um, all these categories that ought not to belong together and yet are mushed together in this one monstrous thing, right? These like these sea monsters are always these figures of chaos. Um, whereas, I mean, the word, the word cosmos itself, which means order, um, was initially ref uh, used in, in Greek to refer to the order of the stars in the sky. I mean, they are the, 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 again, like the mythic, the philosophical, the conceptual instance of order as, as distinct from chaos. Yeah. You never get like a, 
I don't know. Sometimes you know, like my teacher, the octopus, or whatever, right? That the octopus. What is right, it? Right. My, is it octopus? My teacher, my teacher, octopus, professor, octopus. It's yeah, something like that. Something like this. Um, but for the most part, yes. A, uh, you know, aliens have uh, superior technology and superior understanding, and you know, hell beasts from below. Have, yeah. <laughs> but you know, and this is. I, I've loved that you've done this. Uh, you've given such clear, popular examples. You know, like uh, Mike Pence talking this way, or Donald Trump talking this way. But like even like like Pacific Rim, right? Godzilla, like they're even when they're like they're modern stories, like it, <laughs> they're they're monsters from below, yeah, right? That's right. That's interesting. Sorry, yeah. I a little bit of a, a sidetrack there, but the, um, uh, once you start seeing these kind of mythical currents, they do they kind of show up everywhere, um, and they do shape so much of what we uh, we're kind of working through. Um, when you talk about what, what are some ways of reframing this? So it's not, um, well, actually, before we talk about how we should reframe this, what are the dangers of this kind of, uh, name it and claim it, uh, <laughs> space race? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so let me do that like politician thing and be like, you may have heard people argue that, <laughs> <laughs> Um, the argument uh, is for by Zubrin, for example. I mean, even Zubrin, who is the most uh, one of one of the most um, gung ho of um, terra nullius in space guys, right? There is nothing on Mars worth saving. We it it can be ours. We can do whatever we want to it. Terraform it. Do whatever you want with it, right? Um, even Zubrin will say when somebody says, "But isn't this idea this terra nullius? There's, there's this nobody's land, and so you can do whatever." Isn't that what we did, you know, half a century, half a millennium ago, 500 century, 500 years ago? Um, isn't that the doctrine of discovery? Like, isn't that bad? Even Zubrin will say, like, yeah, look, OK, on Earth, it was a mistake. Oops. Like, it was not it wasn't the land was not actually empty. The land actually did belong to people. But like this time, this time, there's nothing out there. There's Jack on the moon. There's nothing on <laughs> Mars. There's nothing worth right. Um, we are worth preserving. It is not. So basically the idea is like, it was a good idea, just badly implemented. Right. But now it's actually a good idea now that we understand that these things are genuinely empty. Um, okay. I think that there, are, um, this is a, it's a very bad idea to apply a tactic that has been so clearly destructive of the earth and its peoples to other planets. Um, for a number of reasons. One, you could just say like, what, like, what is it that assures you that it's going to go well this time? Just like faith, just, I mean, what, I mean, you have no evidence. So is it just faith? Um, and people could say, you know, yes, it's just faith. Um, or they could say, no, but no, but like, come on, tell me what could actually go wrong. Tell me there's, there's actually nobody out there. And in fact, Zubrin also says, um, it's even insulting to the indigenous people of this world, of this earth, to compare this adventure to the colonial adventure. After all, there are no indigenous people out there. How dare you compare the Cherokee Nation, for example, to um, a bunch of dusty rocks on Mars? Like, that is absurd. This is not the same thing at all. Okay. Um, one answer is, if you actually talk to leaders of the Cherokee Nation, if you actually talk to leaders of the Ojibwe Nation, if you actually talk to leaders of the, of the Inuit Nation, of um, the Bawaka people of Northern Australia, um, and you ask the right questions, uh, 
they will often say, you know what, actually, it's not the case that space is empty, that outer space is empty. And it's not even outer. It's part of a whole cosmic neighborhood that is related um, uh, sort of organically to Earth. Um, and it's not also not the case that there's nobody there. Our ancestors are there. right? Um, and for, for the Bawaka, for example, when their people die, when their community members die, they're sent by ritual um, out along the Milky Way, which they call the River of Stars, and they live there. They live out in 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 the cosmos. Um, so they're very concerned that our sort of barnstorming approach to the universe is actually going to disturb the inhabitation of the ancestors, thereby disturbing the relationship between the ancestors and the humans, thereby disturbing everything in human uh, culture and the human world. Um, again, uh, an, an Inuit anthropologist once said to you know to some. Uh, an Inuit uh, shaman once said to a, a white anthropologist who said, like, hey, have you heard the Americans landed on the moon? He was like, oh, my God, is this really the first time you've been to the moon? Like, we're always at the moon because we always visit our relatives on the moon. Like, that's what we do in shamanic states. We go to the moon to visit our relatives. And he says the question isn't whether or not you go to the moon. The question is how you behave once you get there. Right. So um, I so. I don't think it is a foregone conclusion that there is nobody in outer space. There, it is, from a particular perspective, the case that there's nobody in outer space. And from other people's perspectives, actually, there are people in outer space. Um, so this could be one, uh, one danger. The danger would be um, violating, offending, um, upsetting uh, the sensibilities and even the cosmic balance of people um, whose worldviews do not structure the space race. Um, if that is not compelling for you, there is another response, and the other response is taking this, this sort of barnstorming approach to conquering outer space um, is likely to make it impossible actually to learn from these planetary bodies, to learn anything more about these planetary bodies. There may have been at some point life on Mars. There may, have been, there may still be some microbial life somewhere if you like blast apart another rock or something like that. But there are all sorts of stories about the history of the solar system that Mars can tell us, but it can only tell us if we treat it carefully. Um, and respectfully. And we know all kinds of stories about, um, you know, nations and uh, armies sort of blowing up archaeological sites before we could figure out what was going on on Earth. Um, it would be a great idea not to do that to outer space by just um, destroying the terrain before we have a chance to learn anything about it. Um, this is another. So you could make a sort of functionalist intellectual argument this way if you want to make a functionalist intellectual argument. You could also make an aesthetic argument and say, you know, is it appropriate? There was a story a while back that went around saying it was a, it was fake, but um, that Pepsi uh, planned to to like tattoo its its logo on the moon so that when you looked up, you would just see Pepsi on the moon. Now, this feels, I, I think, to anybody of goodwill, um, like a horrifying prospect, right? We don't have the right, it feels like, to change the surface of the moon to such an extent that it would say Pepsi on it. Um, if we mine the moon within an inch of its life, we may well change the, the look of the moon so that it appears very differently, particularly to people who are used to studying the moon and to looking at it and to using it for orientation. Um, aesthetically, um, and in that case spiritually, um, it might not be a great idea just to do whatever we would like to the planetary bodies. Um, politically, it look, right after... Um, space exploration became an actual possibility. The UN set forth this thing called the Outer Space Treaty in which they said, um, they declared, and all of the major nations signed on, that outer space is not subject to national appropriation, meaning no 
nation can claim either a planetary body or any part of a planetary body. And the reason is they were just recovering from two world wars that were the result of the colonial enterprise on Earth. And they were like, let's not do this again. That regardless of what it does to the land itself, the nations that are going after and now the transnational corporations are going to require military enforcement, are going to require all kinds of weapons, weaponry in outer space. Um, The political situation um, that it's going to create both in outer space and here, even if there is nothing there worth preserving, is sufficiently disastrous that our ancestors in the late 60s were like, never do this again and definitely don't do it in outer space where you don't have any access to air. Like, don't do that. And then finally, I would say it's a bad idea um, because the relentless pursuit of profit that has um, that has led to the uh, the globalization of of a particular kind of late stage capitalism um, hasn't been particularly good for the people who have had to sustain it, for the laborers who have for the miners who have had to mine the titanium and the coal and the right. It hasn't um, the, the 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 conditions of uh, of of working and living um, for the people who are given the responsibility of doing that extractive work um, have been pretty horrible. And those people themselves have not reaped the benefits of those industries. Right. Um, so the rich get richer and the poor get poorer and the income gap uh, just widens and widens and widens on this infinite frontier. Um, these are th- So that's what, like five, six different reasons. If any of them is of interest to you, then, um, then, I, then I think that we could find a better way to go about um, exploring other, outer space than to, you know, bring the, to, 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 to declare it a new frontier, declare it open for business and just let people uh, have at it. Why do you turn, it looks like at the end of the book, you talk about turning to pantheism as a way to reframe this. Why Why do you see pantheism as uh, a good way to approach this? Okay. Pantheism may or may not be a good way to approach it, um, but okay. I think it's worth a shot. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, worth yeah, yeah, a yeah. shot. So here's the thing. Um, the, the first thing that I'm trying to do is to show that um, the uh, the suppositions, the values that are currently guiding the corporate space race are not universal values. They're not objective values. And they're not like just scientific values or just political values or just economic values. They're values that have a long mythological history in a very bad reading of Christian scripture. So they're, they're you know, religious in, in like in, in, a, in a particularly bad way. There are these uh, like bad religious stories that are giving heft to our most destructive capacities when it comes to outer space. So I want to unsettle those bad religious stories, call them out, show that they haven't done great work in the past. In fact, they've done terrible work in the past and say, let's not have them work for us again going into the future. Um, But unlike, you know, new atheist type people who would say, you know, look, religion's been motivating us subconsciously, therefore we should get rid of religion. um, I don't tend to think it's possible to get rid of religion because what religion is about, again, are like the most fundamental stories that we tell one another and ourselves. And we're not going to stop telling stories we can't. Our stories are our orientation in the world. Therefore, rather than getting rid of religion, I'm suggesting, why don't we dig up some better stories, um, either explicitly religious or implicitly, whatever, like some better myths um, that can help orient us. And they're all over the place, honestly. Um, There are better ways of reading Genesis, right? Just recently, I mean, like a couple days ago, the Roman Catholic Church, the Vatican repudiated the doctrine of discovery. They were like, oops, (laughs) Oops. and it's not, it's actually not supported by scripture, right? So there are better ways of reading scripture that even extend up to the Vatican, right? Um, Than this, this kind of land grabby activity. 
Um, you can find them certainly in some of the indigenous uh, ontologies that I was talking about. You can find them in science fiction, um, particularly science fiction written by um, like indigenous futurists and Afrofuturists and feminists and uh, queer folks and folks who just sort of like exist on the underside of history and therefore have different ways of going about things. Um, and or um, you can find uh, different ways of valuing the world that we're part of um, in ontologies broadly that I think of as pantheist. Um, and what I mean by that is that they affirm the, um, well, the, the godness of all creation. Um, and that does not mean that like my air conditioner is God. What it means is that everything in the universe, um, created and uncreated, artificial and natural, et cetera, um, participates in the work of uh, creating the world, um, sustaining the world and unraveling and destroying the world, which are the sort of big features of divinity that everything um, does that divine work. Um, and so it seems to me that the kinds of, and there are lots of different pantheist philosophies. They come from all sorts of different places. They don't necessarily map onto each other. They don't, um, but if that's, that's the, 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 um, you could think of like, um, in a, in a sense, like bacteria or fungi as like real theological heroes of, of some pantheisms, because like they do the work of making and unmaking the world. This is what they do. Right. Um, it, seems to me that it's a good counter story to the idea that the sacred, that what's really important, that what's really divine is somehow outside this world or other than this world. Um, it's a way of attending to uh, the sacrality, the significance, the importance, the divinity um, of this earth, for example, so that we don't make the mistake, which I think is a huge mistake of saying, you know, we come from the earth, but we're not supposed to die here or something like that. It's just our launch pad or something like that. It, no, it is, it is the source of our life and it is the end of our life. It is everything that we are. Um, and we may or may not be able to live independently of Earth, but at the moment, everything we are constituted by uh, is of, with, and through Earth. And I think that pantheist philosophies teach us that in a way that often these more utopian philosophies that say, you know, oh, the Earth is a veil of tears and God is somewhere else. Um, they, they, they don't help us with that. In fact, they help um, sort of demonize Earth as something to, to get away from. Um, and I think that they would also help us understand the... Um, the intrinsic value of other planetary bodies so that we could ask, just so we could ask the question, is it right to mine the moon? Is it appropriate? Is it appropriate to mine the moon? Um, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't have a good answer to it. Um, but if we were to think of the moon as having life and agency and a history that's worth respecting in its own right, rather than as instrumental to human beings, um, at least we could ask the question. And at least it wouldn't be a foregone conclusion, right? That we can say, stick a Pepsi logo on the moon or something like that. The rights of rocks, as you, I, I love that phrase. That's, um, uh, and it's, it's really a thought provoking phrase. Um, I, I was going to ask, uh, and I want to be respectful of your time, but uh, I immediately thought of Spinoza because that's who I'm familiar with. That's who I've read. But who are uh, some people that have inspired you? And aside from, of course, reading your excellent book, uh, what are some other places people can look um, to get this pantheist vision of the world that you uh, think might be helpful for reframing? Um, great. Um, well, I, I, so I, um, 
I did write a book on pantheism and I and I began it with Spinoza because <laughs> that's where all pantheism begins. Um, Spinoza is known for having um, uh, used the phrase in a, in a posthumous work because he was worried about publishing it during his lifetime because he had enough surus during his lifetime um, of having uh, of uh, used the phrase coined the, uh, God or nature. Uh, he just used them interchangeably. God and nature were the same thing for Spinoza. Um, so Spinoza is great, but he's very hard to read. Um, and so I, I do, uh, I do start things there. Um, and I, and I end the book kind of bookmark it, um, with Albert Einstein, who is this beautiful, um, beautiful pantheist. Uh, he is, he's one of those guys who was able still, um, to sort of study everything. You know, he knew his philosophy, he knew his anthropology. I mean, it was bad anthropology that he knew, but he knew it. Um, he knew all of these different disciplines. Um, and he was a very deep thinker who was concerned, deeply concerned not only to get the calculations right, which we all know he did, um, but to figure out, like, what the hell they meant. Um, and for him, what they meant was that, you know, God is inherent to, not just, like, bound up with, but, like, is the order of the universe itself. And he's able to say this in a modern key that I think is really beautiful. Um, so any of the essays of Einstein, there are some little collected essays. They're, um, they're really beautiful. He actually got into a heap of trouble about being a pantheist too. Um, but it was basically, I mean, there, there wasn't much that people could do to him, but, um, but the, you know, the newspapers got very angry for a few years. Oh yeah. At very, Albert, yeah. <laughs> at Albert Einstein. The old version of Twitter. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, I think you can find this kind of thinking in, um, James Lovelock and Lynn Margulis, um, who are the sort of twin authors of the, the Gaia hypothesis. Um, the understanding of the earth as a set of interconnected organisms um, that form a kind of symbiotic uh, system um, that uh, that creates, uh, Lynn Margulis uses the term autopoetic, it basically creates and uncreates and recreates itself. Um, and they do this uh, in service of an ecological uh, ethic. So um, Lovelock's Gaia hypothesis and basically any um, – Margulis didn't write a ton of books. I mean she wrote one uh, – co-authored a couple with uh, Dorian, her son Dorian Sagan, um, one called What is Life that's actually really remarkable. Um, so th those, two I, th those two I really love. Lovelock is a little more of a kind of unifier. He wants to talk about the earth as like one big organism. Um, Margulis is like, no, it's countless intertwinings. Like she just will not capitulate to the one. Um, but she's, she's pretty remarkable too. Um, the end of the color purple, um, one of Alice Walker's characters there has this absolutely stunning vision of, um, moving from what she calls like God as a big white guy in the sky, um, to God as everything and getting to the point where she says, and I just knew that if a tree were cut, my arm would bleed. Like I can, I can feel this way. Um, his understanding of God as everything. Um, so these would, these would be some places to go. Um, uh, a lot of people like to look out to Octavia Butler's parable of the sower and, you know, God as the force of change itself. Um, I think you can kind of find it all over the place once you start, once you start hunting for it, but those are some places to start. Awesome. Uh, it's been a real pleasure having you on. If you could leave our audience with one thing, what would it be? It doesn't have to be a summary, because I think that would be unfair to ask. But if there was one thing that you'd want them to walk away with this week, what would it be? So N.K. Jemison has this story. Um, it's a, it's a um, kind of meditation on Ursula Le Guin's uh, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas. And N.K. Jemison's story is called The Ones Who Stay and Fight. 
And what she says in there, she she she's talking about a utopian community where everybody is fed. Everybody is fed. I mean, just stop with that for a second. Like everybody's fed and everybody has a home if they want one, she says. And for people who don't, who'd rather not have a home, you know, the benches don't have spikes so you can sleep on them if you'd like to. And the streets are kept clean and things like that. Right. Um, and she says, you know, this is the city. Uh, it's a city in which um, it's a city whose inhabitants simply care for one another. So she builds this city, this um, imagined place, just on the principle of, um, of care, of just, just basic, basic care for one another. Um, and at one point, she's confronting uh, the reader who is you know, supposedly not believing that it's possible to build this kind of society. Um, and she says, like, what? How could you? And she says, there are other options. That just very simply, there are other options. There are other ways to be. And I think that our... Um, the, the most sort of prophetic of our, um, our authors, our speculative fiction authors, our science fiction authors, are the ones who can remind us that there are other options, that there, we, it doesn't have to be this way, that we do not have to play this zero-sum game between human extinction on the one hand and living on Mars with Elon Musk on another. There are other ways to do things. And, and those other stories are everywhere. They're absolutely everywhere. We just need to listen to them. Uh, Dr. Rubenstein, been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for coming on today. Um, really fascinating. Thank you so much, PJ. It was great to talk to you. 